0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch, London. For more information and resources, please go to Christchurchlondon.org. Morning, everyone. You know when you get up early in the morning and you get dressed for the day you think it's going to be? Well, spring happened in Stockwell. And then I got here and it's like, oh, there's no spring anymore. Um, But yeah, I thought, spring's here, toms are out that's just the way it happens, and now I'm feeling a little cold, but there we go. Um, anyway, hello from the South Service. Uh, my name is Tim. Um, I lead the South Service, had the pleasure of that, um, and it is my great pleasure to be with you today uh, to continue our teaching series on prayer. If you are new here this morning or just haven't been around for a while, um, we have been thinking lately that actually we want to become a more prayerful community. If it's just kind of like something that it feels like God is speaking to us about. And when I say God speaking to us, I don't mean kind of a big, booming voice to us. I just mean that many people in our church community have been feeling inspired and encouraged and even challenged to be praying more. And so we thought, well, let's do a series on prayer. Let's not just give opportunity to pray more, which we want to do, but let's equip one another to know how to pray. And we thought that maybe the best way to do that would be to look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels and to see how he prayed and what he taught his disciples to pray. Um, It just becomes very clear when you read the Gospels, which if you have never done, I'd recommend that you do. It's a great way to find out about Jesus and what he taught. Mark's Gospels, the shortest Gospels, so start there if you haven't read one of the Gospels. And when you read through the Gospels, you just sense that Jesus is a man completely devoted to prayer that prayer for him is a priority. It's something that he gets up early to do, something that he stays up late to do, something that he kind of leaves family and friends behind and work behind in order to get time alone and do communion with the Father. It's just so important to him. But It also seems that it is kind of the source of his wisdom, the source of his power, the source of his love. And so we think that if we want to become a community that looks like Jesus, which we do, if we want to kind of live like him and love like him, have the same impact that he had, then actually maybe learning how to pray like him might be a good thing to do. So that is what we have been doing. Um, Today we're going to be looking, um, rather than looking at what Jesus kind of taught about prayer, which we have done, we're going to be effectively eavesdropping into him actually praying. So we're going to be looking at the Garden of Gethsemane and looking at his prayer of surrender there. Um, This is a a scene that's recorded in three of the four gospel accounts of his life. Um, So an important thing, they all put it in there. This is very, very important for us to kind of get and to know. Um, And we're going to be looking at Mark's account of this. Um, And it comes in Mark chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, don't worry, the words will come up on the screen behind me. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 32. They, that is Jesus and his closest disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will. But what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners, rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer of surrender, not my will, but yours be done. And we're going to look at what we can learn about it for ourselves, but before we do that, let's kind of locate this passage into the whole of Mark's narrative. So after three years of traveling around the Judean countryside, kind of speaking in villages and in towns, Jesus has been announcing that the kingdom of God is here, that it is present with him. And he's been teaching people what that kingdom of love looks like. He's been performing miracles. He's been healing people. He's been having just kind of an incredible time. And Jesus and his disciples kind of then find themselves coming into Jerusalem at this point to celebrate um, the Passover festival, an annual Passover Or at least that's why the disciples think that they're in Jerusalem. Jesus knows that actually this last three years he's been kind of stirring up this hornet's nest. And events have been put into motion that are going to lead to his arrest, his conviction as effectively um, uh, a rebel um, convicted of treason against Rome and going to lead to him being executed. So Jesus knows that he has come to Jerusalem to die and he's tried to explain this to his disciples several times, but they just never seem to get it. The most recent is at the Last Supper, where he did what you guys have done here this morning. He takes bread and he breaks it. Says, this is my body, going to be broken for you. Takes wine, pours it out. This is my blood poured out for you. But they still don't get it. And I don't think we should be too hard on them for that. Like, in their mind, they just can't comprehend that God's plan would be for Jesus to die. But Jesus knows that is exactly the plan. He knows that in just a few short hours, he's going to be arrested and then killed. And so he does the one thing, the only thing that he knows will prepare him for what he's going to go through. He does the one thing that comes most naturally to him, he goes off to find some space and some time to pray. And so he takes all of his disciples with him um, to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and at the bottom of that, there's like this garden, an olive garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he kind of leaves most of the disciples in the, like, in the entrance to the garden, says, stay here, wait, pray. And he takes James, Peter, and John with him further into the garden. Now, these guys are Jesus' kind of best friends. They're his closest friends. These are the guys that he, can be most, he feels most comfortable with, the guys that have journeyed most of his journey most closely with him. These are the guys that he can be completely vulnerable with. And so when it gets to just the four of them, it's as if he starts to kind of emotionally engage with the reality, the horror of what is to come in a way that we haven't seen him do before. And he starts to get visibly distressed. And he says to them that he's feeling overwhelmed with sorrow. And that word there conjures up this image of being engulfed by sorrow. Like a boat in the middle of a stormy ocean waves crashing over it, ready to capsize it. And he tells them, stay here, watch, pray for me. And then he goes even further into the garden when he's alone. And he falls down on the ground and he pleads with God that there might be another way. I think there's something quite poetic about Jesus being in an olive garden in a place called Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. As you probably know, olive oil was one of the great resources of the ancient world. It wasn't just used for cooking like we use it for, it was also used as a source of fuel. So it was used to kind of give light to houses, put in lamps and burned. It was used as a medicine, in lots of different types of medicines, so it brought health. The Israelites also used it in their worship. So olive oil was something that kind of permeated the whole of Israelite life. But obviously the only way to get olive oil is to take the fruit of the olive tree and to crush it to a pulp. Without the destruction of something good, something better cannot come. And this is the reality that Jesus is struggling with in prayer. He knows that in order for light and health and healing and worship to flow out to the world, he himself has to be crushed. He knows that in order to defeat the powers of sin and death that are holding humanity captive, that stopped them, to stop us from living the life God intended us to live, he knows that in order to win relationship for us to have with the Father, he himself must die. Jesus knows that the only way for God's kingdom to come to the earth is if it comes through him. And he knows that God's kingdom can only come out there if it has first come in here, in his heart first. In the Lord's Prayer that David looked at a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus taught his disciples and us by extension to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I don't know about you, but when I pray that, my mind goes straight to the stuff out there that I want God to do. I find myself that God would bring his kingdom to my part of the world. I live in Stockwell. We've got a church in Stockwell. I ask that God will bring your kingdom to Stockwell as it is in heaven. I ask him to bring kind of his light and his life to Stockwell. I say, God, do it. Bring it. Do what only you can do. Bring light where there is darkness and life where there is death. Bring joy and hope when there is despair. Bring healing where there is pain. God, get involved. Do this. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shows us that praying, let your kingdom come, involves more than simply asking God to bring his kingdom to us. It involves surrendering ourselves that he might bring his kingdom through us. For some strange and mysterious reason, <coughs> excuse me, God's plan to renew the whole world involves us. It involves you and it involves me. God has decided to bring his kingdom through us, to use us wherever we are, every part of our life to bring his kingdom through us. He wants to use us to bring the flavors and the sounds and the smells and the textures of heaven to earth. One person who did just that, he used what God had given him to bring a piece of heaven to earth was a guy called Vajran Smaylovich, who was the former principal cellist of the Sarajeva Opera. Now, you may be familiar with this story already, but it's such a great story that I don't care. I'm going to tell it anyway. On May 28th, 1992, Vajran Smaylovich dressed in his black formal tails, and he went out into the street next to his house, and he sat down in a bomb crater on a fire scorched chair, and he began to play his cello. Between 1992 and 1995, the Siege of Sarajevo: more than 10,000 civilians, 10,000 civilians, were killed, mostly from mortar attacks and sniper fire, as the Serbian army laid siege to the city. And every day was a struggle for survival. Kind of the uh, the water supply had been cut, and the gas supply had been cut. Food was hard to come by, and not only that, everyone lived under this constant threat of mortar fire and sniper fire. So there was this like psychological darkness that had descended upon the city, this sense of hopelessness. And Smilovich lived near to one of the few working bakeries left in Sarajevo. And so every day he would see lines of people gathered up, queuing for bread. And one day, as he looks on in horror, he sees this mortar shell come over and poof, explode. Dozens of people are instantly killed, dozens more injured. And he rushes to the scene to try and help, and he gets there, and he's just overcome with grief at the carnage in front of him. And it's, that is the reason, the next day that he gets dressed in his black tails, and he takes his cello, he goes and stands in the very spot where this mortar has exploded, still kind of the aftermath of the carnage all around him, and he starts to play this most beautiful music. And every day for the next 22 days, one day each for the 22 people that were killed, he plays. And actually, he keeps on playing for the next three years during the whole siege of Sarajevo. And he prays at gravesides and at funerals, and he prays in kind of bombed-out buildings, and he prays in, in sniper-infested streets. This is a picture of him um, playing in the ruins of the National Library, which was targeted during the siege. And smilovic's music created these moments of oasis, amid the horror of war. They offered hope to the people. They offered a a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were intent on destroying the city. His music brought a piece of heaven into the hell that the people of Sarajevo were suffering. It was almost a prophetic act, declaring no matter how ugly evil is, no matter how powerful it may seem, it will not have the last word. Isn't that an incredible story? Don't you hear that and think, yes, that's what I want for my life. I want my life to make that kind of difference, to have that kind of impact. I want a life that brings beauty and hope to a city. A life that prophetically declares that evil is not going to have the last word, that there is something greater. A life where I can use the things that God has given me, the talents, the passions, the opportunities to bring heaven to earth. But the only hesitancy I have about this story is that it also illustrates that bringing heaven to earth nearly always involves a sacrifice of some kind. Every time he went out into the streets, Smailovich chose to sacrifice his safety by making himself completely vulnerable. I mean, it's a wonder that he wasn't shot over those three years as he went around playing his cello. And as much as I wish it wasn't true, as much as I wish that the kingdom of God would just come by me watching Netflix and sleeping in late and just kind of agreeing that it would be a good idea if the kingdom of God did come, as much as I want that to be true, I can't get away from the fact that the life of Jesus and the teachings of the scriptures and the experience of the church throughout history is that God's kingdom only comes through us when we sacrifice something to God. It involves me surrendering my will the God's will. It involves surrendering the way I spend my time, the way I spend my money, the things that I think about, the place that I choose to live, my career choices, even what I do with my body. It involves surrendering all of that to God, that he might make me into the kind of person that he can bring his kingdom through. Now, when it comes to other areas of life, I think we kind of intuitively get this. We understand, for example, that someone like Serena Williams... the world's greatest tennis player. She's won 23 Grand Slam singles titles, she's won four gold medals, she's had a career that spanned over 20 years. We understand that for someone like her, to do that kind of thing, there's probably some sacrifice involved in that. We understand that every area of her life would have been surrendered to this one goal of being the world's best tennis player. And so we wouldn't be surprised to find out that how she spends her time and how she spends her money and her career choices and the places that she's chosen to live and what she thinks about and the things that she does with her body have all been surrendered to this one goal. It makes sense to us. We as a society kind of honor that in her, and rightly so. The kind of passion and drive and uh, self-discipline single-minded focus that it takes for someone to do what she has done and stay at the top of her game for so long is commendable but don't you think that the people of God entrusted with the good news of Jesus invited to join him in renewing all things with all the spiritual resources of heaven available to us don't you think that we should be living with an equally single-minded focus Why is it that we don't? Why is it that I don't? Why don't I do that? Why is it I have such a hard time surrendering my will to God's will? I mean, maybe it's because what God's asked us to render sometimes just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like life to us. Maybe it's because we don't really trust kind of the direction He is pointing us in. Or maybe it does make sense, but actually He just feels too hard. It feels beyond our reach. Whatever it is, I think we can take great comfort from the fact that Jesus found it tough to surrender his will to God's too. The gospel accounts make it very clear that deciding to surrender his life was not an easy thing for Jesus. It was something that he agonized over in prayer for hours. Luke's account of this scene in his gospel records that he was so distressed at the thought of what was going to happen to him that he started to sweat blood. This is something we know as a rare condition called hematidrosis in which severe mental anxiety um, activates the sympathetic nervous system's flight or flight mode to such an extent that the vessels around the sweat glands burst and you literally start to sweat blood. So it's clear that he's under this huge psychological pressure as he prayed. Now, we don't know exactly what the content of his prayers were. I think the gospel accounts just kind of give us more headlines, give us more themes than the actual words. I don't think he just repeated that phrase over and over for three hours, like a mantra. It just doesn't fit with what Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. He said, don't offer up empty words, but pour out your heart to your Father who knows and loves you. And so I can imagine Jesus talking to his Father about the things that he was being asked to surrender Maybe he talked about having to surrender ever getting married and having kids. Maybe he talked to him about having to surrender years and years of life and love and fun, growing old with his friends and family. Maybe he talked to him about surrendering decades more fruitful ministry. I'm sure the type of death was on Jesus' mind. Jesus was being asked to surrender his body to the most painful, most drawn out, most humiliating form of execution that the world has seen. Crucifixion, which is where we get our word excruciating from, was used by the Romans not only to punish um, criminals and revolutionaries, but was used to make an example of them. It was intended to be very public, very painful, so that people would see people being crucified and think, I'm not going to do what those guys did it's more than likely that Jesus growing up under Roman occupation as he did would have seen a crucifixion firsthand. And even if he hadn't seen it, he would have heard about it. He would have known what it involved. Jesus was going into this with his eyes wide open. But as bad as that was, as terrible, as horrific as the thought of the emotional and the physical pain he was being asked to surrender to, that was nothing compared to the spiritual pain he was going to have to go through. Jesus was being asked to endure the fracturing, the breaking apart of the Trinity, this eternal relationship that he would enjoyed with Father and Spirit. He was being asked to give up the communion of love and mutual delight that he would enjoyed for all eternity as the full weight and power of evil and darkness was unleashed upon him as it crushed him and cut him off from the source of all love and all light as it cast him into utter darkness, Jesus was being asked to endure hell in order to bring God's kingdom to the world. And so it's no wonder that he started to sweat blood. But then during the course of the evening, as he prays, as he agonizes, as he struggles with his father, as he pleads with his father to make another way, something happens. It's like something shifts in him. And he walks out of that final time of prayer, almost completely composed. He's now ready for what is to come. He walks out as if like the fear has gone or if not gone completely. It now no longer holds kind of the priority spot in his mind and emotions. Something else has come in there. And what is that something else? Well, we're told in Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus struggled in prayer until the joy of doing his Father's will, until the joy of knowing what would happen if he did, which is that you and me get to stand here today being told about Jesus, being invited into relationship with the Father, that you and me can be freed from sin and death, that we can be raised up from the fall to take our rightful place as divine image bearers once more and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He saw that, and the joy of that was greater than the fear of what was going to happen. It was greater than his desire for a peaceful, comfortable, pain-free existence. And if we had time, we could read on, and we would see that everything that happened after that is Jesus' choice. He lets it happen. I mean, when they come for him, when the temple guards come for him, the disciples say, let's fight for you. We will fight our way out of this. It's like, fellas, if I wanted to, I could call down 50,000 angels. I don't need your help in this. This isn't the plan. The plan is for me to die. And as you follow him through those next few hours, as he is arrested and tried, as he is whipped and beaten and then walked up the hill and then stuck on a cross, you just see the grace, the strength, the love that he exhibits so that even when he is hanging there on the cross, he can look down and say, Father, forgive them. Forgive these people who are doing this horrible thing to me, for they know not what they do. There's a Roman centurion there, and this is a guy who's probably seen hundreds of people get crucified. And he looks up and he sees Jesus dying with such grace, free from fear, free from bitterness. He's not calling out, cursing God, just full of love. And he looks up and says, surely this man is the son of God. Jesus got to the place in prayer when he was willing to suffer hell in order to save us. He was willing to give up everything no matter what the cost. And he changed the world forever. So where does that leave us? Is this story of Jesus just given for us to appreciate more the sacrifice that he made? Well, yes, that is why it is there. It's so that we see this and we understand the depths of his love for us. It's supposed to elicit something from us. It's supposed to elicit worship from us and gratitude and thanks. But I don't think that's the only reason this is in here. I don't think that's the only way we can read it. I think we can read this as a model for us too. I'm sure that all of us have areas in our lives where we are struggling to say to God, not my will, but your will. I'm sure that all of us have areas in life where it feels like actually following God is leading to a kind of death rather than a kind of life. And I think that by following the example that Jesus gives us in Gethsemane, we too can get to a place where the joy of doing God's will is greater than anything else. The first thing we see from Jesus is that he is intentional about praying this stuff through with God. When we're finding it hard to surrender our will to God, the way through is not to just kind of grin and bear it. It's not to white-knuckle it. Just hold on with kind of sheer willpower to keep on going. We can do that for a time, but sooner or later, that's going to exhaust us. And we're just going to give up trying. Now, what we need is not more willpower. We need a heart change. We need God the Holy Spirit to come in and change us from the inside out and the only way for that to happen is for us to give intentional time to allow him to do that now for you that may mean doing what Jesus did it may mean going outside on a walk it may mean verbalizing your prayers speaking them out maybe sitting down in a coffee shop and journaling typing or writing your thoughts out maybe getting a friend to come over and chatting it you need maybe the person that kind of needs to talk to someone else about these kind of things It may be just sitting here on a Sunday in worship, inviting the Holy Spirit to do something in your heart. However you best spend time with God, the point is to be intentional about making sure that you do, that you get that time. And then when you're there, do what Jesus did and start your conversation with God by being aware, becoming aware of who it is that you are talking to. Abba, Father, Jesus prayed. Everything is possible for you. Jesus is doing here what he taught the disciples to do. It's like first few lines of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Jesus is reminding himself that God is a good father that loves him and also a mighty king able to do all that he wants to do, able to bring about good for him. I think we will always find it hard to surrender our will to God's will unless we become convinced not just kind of intellectually understanding, but unless we become convinced deep in our heart that God is a good father who loves us, who has good plans for us, and his ways lead to life. Now, I know that for many of us, understanding God as father can be a bit of a stretch. And that maybe because of kind of our experience of our earthly fathers, and maybe we've just kind of grown up with this kind of disconnect and this understanding of God as father, there is way more God is going to punish us for getting, getting out of line than it is I am a good father who loves to give good gifts to my children. But the good news is that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, kind of his, one of his main jobs is to whisper into our hearts over and over, you are a loved child of God. You are a loved child of God. If you are finding it hard to submit your will to the will of God, I would encourage you to make it your priority, to get in a place where you are quiet enough To hear God whisper to you, I would urge you to put aside time to let the Holy Spirit work on your heart, to kind of rewire it, to rewrite over those lies that you have started to believe about God. One of the things I've personally found really helpful in my journey in this, which it feels I'm very much at the beginning of, is to meditate and to think about um, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, which you can find in Luke 15. I found that incredibly helpful to think about God as Father. And actually, this is a picture uh, by Charlie McAsee, an artist. And I, I have spent time just looking at this picture and allowing God to speak to me through it. And I imagine myself in the arms of my Father. I imagine him holding me, sometimes like literally holding my weight up because I feel too exhausted. And I imagine him speaking into my, to my ear. That's such a tender embrace in this picture. Speaking, you are my beloved son. I love you. In you, my favor rests. Your home is here with me. This has been, this is life transforming for me. Now, that may not do it for you. I mean, that may just be, I I don't get that at all. But there will be something that does it for you. It may be listening to a song on repeat. It may be, I don't know, being in this kind of environment, worshiping God. It may be chatting to someone. It may be praying. It may be reading a book. Whatever it is, find that thing, find that space where you are letting the Holy Spirit whisper into your heart, you are a dearly loved child of God. And then when we're in that place, when we're experiencing God as Father, Jesus encourages us through his example to be as honest as we can about how we are feeling. Even if that is painful to do, especially if that is painful to do. If it is possible, Jesus prayed, take this cup from me. He's saying here, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to the cross. By including this in the Gospels, do you see how God is giving us permission to invoice the very deepest thoughts, the things that we like, wouldn't let other people hear? We have to put on this front, everything's fine. I'm a good, like I follow Jesus. It's all fine, isn't it great? Yeah, sacrifice, brilliant. Jesus saying, no, sacrifice is hard. We don't want to do it. And God gives us the permission to say that to him, to say, this thing you're asking me to do, it feels like death. This thing you're asking me to do, I don't understand why you are asking me to do this. This thing that I've given up for you, it is killing me. God gives us permission to say that to him. Do you see how different this is to the authority figures that we know in our life that just say, my way or the highway. Do it this way, just get on board. We may have like, heard other kind of preachers say, just do it, do it. God says it, do it. But God is a father. He's not like that cliche drill sergeant in the army trying to break everyone's will, trying to break them, getting to, the, to such a point that they would just do whatever he says unthinkingly, unquestionably. That is not the way God works with us. He allows us time and space He knows how hard it can be. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. And yet he doesn't want us to stay there. He knows that his way leads to life. And so he will gently move us through until we come to this place. And then lastly, Jesus shows us in order to get to a place of surrender, we might need to be persistent. This may take some time. Sometimes the Holy Spirit works on us in such a way that there's kind of a moment transformation and when that happens, it is amazing and we pray for that and celebrate it. But I think my experience is that often it takes more than a moment for real change to happen. Often it takes some time. For Jesus, it took hours of prayer. Did you notice that it took him three times going away, praying, coming back, not feeling it yet, still feeling the fear. Goes away, he prays, comes back, not feeling it yet. Still doesn't want to surrender. Goes away, prays, and then it's at that point that he changes. And if it took Jesus time to do that, if it was a process for Jesus, it shouldn't come if a surprise to us that it may be a process for us too. Surrendering to God may be something that happens in a moment. May take hours. May take weeks. May take months. May even take years. Don't compare yourself to other people in this. Just keep on coming back to the Father. Keep on coming back to that place where you're letting him change you. And bit by bit, I guarantee, you, we will be changed from one degree of glory to the next, is how Paul puts it in Corinthians. We will be changed into the type of people that God can bring his kingdom through. Have the band back. In a moment, we are going to finish by singing together. But before we do that, I'm going to lead us in saying the first part of the Lord's Prayer together and giving us a moment to reflect and to pray. And as we say these words out loud together or just quietly in your own heart, if you would prefer that, why don't you pick just one of the lines to focus on? Maybe you want to know and experience more of God's Father heart for you. As we pray, our Father in heaven, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to make the Father's heart more real to you? Maybe you have a passion to see God's kingdom come in your area, your part of the city, um, your sphere of influence, wherever that is. As we pray, your kingdom come, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you could be an answer to your own prayer? Or maybe there is an area of life that you are just finding it hard to submit to God. to. As we pray, your will be done why not choose to surrender that part of your life to him right here this morning? Or if that feels like too much of a step, why don't you start the conversation? Why don't you start by saying something like, God, I don't want to surrender this to you, but I want to want to. Please change me. Why don't we just stand, and then I'll lead us in praying this prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just have a moment. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org.